Today's scripture is going to be in the Gospel of Luke. It's going to be chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Good morning, everybody. My name is Steve, and I'm the associate pastor here at Regeneration. We've recently spent some significant time in the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we finished that last Sunday. So we're going to begin a new study next week. Albert will be leading us through the book of 2 Peter for the next couple of weeks, starting next Sunday. In the meantime, there will be a handful of opportunities for me to teach this fall, and so during that time, we're going to look at some of these parables from Luke's gospel. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning, Luke chapter 11. Before we get into that, though, I want to begin with this. Okay, I want you guys to think about some of the best conversations that you've ever had. In your mind, begin forming a top five, top ten list of the best conversations that you've ever had. Okay, where were you when you were having those conversations? Who were you with? What were you guys talking about? And then why do those moments, those people, those particular places stand out to you? Why do those moments stick with you? Why would they go in your top five list? I'm a visual person. So when I think of some of the best conversations I've ever had, I get a couple different pictures in my mind. One of those pictures is of a table. And in particular, I think of the table in my parents' dining room. So many hours really sitting around that table eating of course but also just talking and sharing our lives with one another and that table has grown over the years as each of us has gotten married and, and now there are grandkids around that table and again it, it continues to serve as this focal place not just of family time but really of deep conversation sharing life together solving each other's problems solving the world's problems as we sit around that table Another picture I get is of a fire pit. I can think of so many different nights in someone's backyard or on a beach somewhere sitting around a fire pit, laughing, telling all of our silly stories, 
And again, just sharing these really deep things, these big questions that we're wrestling with and working through. And then I also think about cars. I don't know what it is about road trips, but there's something about being in the car with people for a really long time that tends to like break down your barriers, right? And you just start opening up and sharing all different kinds of things. The longer the trip, the better, it seems like, for these sorts of things. It was in a car where I told my friend, I think Amy is the one. It was in a car where Amy and I have sorted out all different challenges and stages of our life together. So for me, it's the table, it's the fire pit, it's the car, but for you, what are those places where those kinds of conversations have taken place? And then what were those conversations about? My guess is that in your top five, top ten list of all-time greatest conversations, there's some lighter moments, right? There's those moments of just laughing, like uncontrollably tears coming down your face, where you're telling embarrassing stories and just laughing together, lighter moments. And I'm also guessing that there are, of course, some serious moments as well. Moments of confession or intense question asking. Maybe even arguing about some of the deeper things of life. These moments where you get really honest and you're able to tell the truth about yourself. Right? Powerful moments. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Okay, I grew up in church. I've been in church for a long time. I've heard a lot of sermons. I don't even want to think about how many sermons I've heard. <laughs> I've been to dozens of camps. I've been to dozens of conferences. I went to seminary. I've sat through all different kinds of classes and lectures. I've read probably too many books. And each of those things in its way has played a really important role in my life and in my formation as a follower of Jesus. But far and away... The moments that have been the most formative, the most life-giving and life-shaping, that have had the deepest and farthest-reaching impact on my life, on my marriage, on my parenting, on my ministry, some of the most sacred spiritual moments of my life have been these conversations in cars, around a fire pit, at someone's table. Conversations are powerful. If you were with us on Wednesday night for our first Faith and Justice conversation, Ben McBride was here and he was sharing, and one of the questions that came up was, like, what's a real practical thing that I can do to respond to some of the issues that we see going on? And his answer was, talk to people. Listen to people. Essentially, he said, have conversations. And in having those conversations, stuff will emerge you'll figure out what you need to do. Conversations are powerful. Hearing each other's stories is powerful. Now, the art and importance of conversations was not lost on Jesus. Some of the biggest, most famous scenes from Jesus' life took place in these everyday kinds of settings. Around the table, at the fire pit, in the car. They didn't have cars, of course, but you know what I mean. <laughs> For some reason, we have a hard time imagining this. A lot of us, when we think of Jesus, we automatically go to Jesus the preacher, Jesus the teacher. Jesus was a master of conversation. I think part of our difficulty, and again, being able to imagine this, has to do with the misunderstanding about language, about types of communication. 
So there's typically three types of communication that we see Jesus engaging in in the Gospels. The first is called charismatic communication or charismatic language. Charisma is just a really fancy word for preaching. Okay, this is the language of preaching. In Mark chapter 1, we read, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Key word there is proclamation. This is classic charismatic language. Preaching is a language, a type of communication that is designed to get us involved, to call us to take some sort of action, repent and believe. Charismatic language. Then there's didactic communication or didactic language. This is the language of teaching. Jesus, of course, does a lot of teaching. In fact, the entire Gospel of Matthew is sort of broken up into five sections, each section focusing on one extended period of teaching that Jesus does. Sometimes they're called the five discourses. The first of which is the Sermon on the Mount, very famous teaching, Matthew 5 through 7. And there's four more of those in Matthew's gospel. Didactic language, teaching language, is language that invites us to fill in the gaps in our understanding, and in particular here in our understanding of the gospel. First, repent and believe, and then here's some stuff to help figure out what that means. That's how that works. More cognitive-focused than action-oriented. So there's charismatic communication, there's didactic communication, and then finally there's what's called paracletic communication. Paracletic language is the language of conversations. It's the language of the table, of the fire pit. Paracletic language is informal. It's everyday words and phrases and stories. It's conversational, and here's the key thing. It's personal. Personal language. Now, in church, we focus, for good reasons, on charismatic and didactic communication very heavily. We need to proclaim, in no uncertain terms, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We need to teach and instruct and help each other fill in these gaps in our lives. This is why we gather here on Sunday to hear the word preached, to hear the gospel proclaimed. It's why we offer classes and home groups, these spaces for further learning. But most of our lives are not lived on Sunday, right? Most of our lives are lived Monday through Saturday, where we're engaging primarily in conversations. And I think far too often we downplay or we completely ignore the importance of paracletic language, these everyday conversations. Think again about those great conversations that you've had. Right? They probably didn't involve someone lecturing you. They probably didn't involve a PowerPoint presentation. They probably didn't involve you taking notes. Doesn't mean that they weren't important or that they weren't formative, though, right? Almost certainly, these conversations at some point involved the sharing of these deep places in our souls. There wasn't so much a call to action or some sort of thing that you were supposed to learn but there was significant formation that occurred. That's paracletic conversation, and that's 
what we get here in the Gospel of Luke. Now let's take a look here for a moment at this scene for today's text. Jesus has been hanging out with his disciples. They've observed him praying. And so as they sit at the table or around the fire pit or in the car, wherever they might be here, whatever the first century version of those things are, the conversation turns to prayer and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now here's a fun fact. This is the only time in any of the four Gospels where the disciples make a request like this. Teach us how to do something. Think about that. That's pretty fascinating. The thing, the one thing that they asked Jesus, teach us more about this, is what? Prayer. Think of all the other things they could have asked about. They could have requested, teach us how to preach. Teach us to do miracles. Teach us some leadership skills. Teach us how to organize our ministry. Teach us ethics or systematic theology or the correct interpretation of the book of Revelation. Hadn't been written, of course, yet, but they could have asked anything. They asked, Lord, teach us how to pray. This is not a charismatic or a didactic question. This is a personal question. And Jesus doesn't give them a charismatic or a didactic answer. He gives them a personal answer. So how does Jesus respond to this monumental request? Luke chapter 11, verse 2. When you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is not a long prayer. This is not a flowery prayer. This prayer has very little jargon in it, not a lot of churchy spiritual language. Now, you don't have to be someone who's been around church for a long time to be somewhat familiar with this prayer, right? Many people know the Lord's Prayer. And so as a result, it may have become somewhat familiar to us. And I want to kind of rephrase it for us in a way that our modern ears can hear it fresh and in a way that maybe the disciples would have heard it. So they come, they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says something like this. Dad, you are awesome. You're in charge. Feed us. Forgive us when we screw up. Please don't lead us down a wrong path. That's how ordinary this prayer would have sounded to the disciples. In our Pew Bibles, in the ESV translation, it's 36 English words. It takes about 20 to 25 seconds to speak it out loud. That's amazing to me. The human being who had the deepest, most intimate relationship with God of all time is given a golden opportunity to teach a master-level class on prayer, and he says, Dad, you're awesome. You're in charge. Feed us. Forgive us. Please don't lead us to a bad place. That's it. There's your PhD in prayer right there. <laughs> I kind of imagine the disciples responding in that way, like, that's it? <laughs> Just that? We're done? 
Now, of course, we're not done yet. We'll get to what comes after that here in just a minute. But a little bit more context. Okay, just one more bit of context here. Each of the four Gospels is structured in its own unique way. Matthew, as we just talked about here a couple moments ago, is structured around these five long teachings or discourses. In John's Gospel, you read through it, it's structured around seven signs. Luke's Gospel is structured into three acts. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Each one is based on geography. In Act 1, Jesus spends his time in Galilee. Now, Galilee was Jesus' home field. It's where he grew up. It's where he started his ministry. And it's where most of the action there takes place. We get to Luke 9, 51, though, and Act 1 comes to a close. We read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus begins to sense that his time on earth is coming to an end, and he knows that end is going to take place in Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of worship for his people. And so he sets his face in that direction. Other translations might say he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Act 1 takes place in Galilee. Act 3 takes place in Jerusalem. And then Act 2 is everything that comes in between those two places. Now, guess which of those three acts is the longest? Act 2, right? The in-between. Jesus doesn't get to Jerusalem until Luke 19, verse 28. How much of our lives is lived in between? Now, it's not like Jesus lacked clarity or focus or direction. He had plenty of it. He knew exactly where he was going. I am going to Jerusalem, and he sets his face, which is a rugged, sort of wholehearted commitment. But it takes him 10 chapters to get there. Now, where is Jesus in Act 2 in Luke's Gospel? Well, he's on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. This section of Luke is often called the travel narratives, stories of Jesus' travels. But he's mostly in Samaria. Now, we don't have time to get into all the history about Samaritans and Jews in the background there, but here's the short version. Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other. So Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, is in unfriendly, even hostile territory in Act 2 in Luke's Gospel. There's not a lot of openness to what he has to say. There's not a lot of people who want to hear a preacher. There's not a lot of people who want to sit through a lecture. So what does Jesus do in this unfriendly territory? He tells stories. He has conversations. And the stories that he tells... And the travel narratives in Luke's gospel are unique to Luke. It tells ten different parables. None of them show up in the other gospels. One of these parables is what we're looking at here this morning. On the road, in unfamiliar territory, in between these moments of clarity, Galilee and Jerusalem, Jesus tells stories about coins and barns and friends and bread and sons and sheep, judges and farmers and weddings, stories about everyday things. These are Monday through Saturday conversations. 
at tables, in cars, around the fire pit. Paracletic conversation, personal communication. So again, when Jesus is asked about prayer, he doesn't give a sermon, he doesn't hold a workshop for his disciples, he tells a story, tells a parable. So Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because of his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, there's a lot of friends in this story, so let's break this down a little bit. Friend A has friend B show up on his doorstep at midnight. I don't know about you, I don't like being woken up in the middle of the night. <laughs> so there's that to begin with, but Middle Eastern hospitality laws were pretty strict. They continue to be strict in many ways. It would have been incredibly bad form, even shameful for friend A to not give friend B food and shelter. Friend A has shelter, but he doesn't have any food, so he goes over to friend C's house looking for a hookup. Give me some bread for this guy that's just shown up at my doorstep. Friend C's like, dude, I'm in bed. My kids are asleep. Don't bother us. All the parents said, amen. <laughs> but eventually he relents, and he gets this guy bread, and I love this. It's not because they're friends, right? He gives friend A bread because of his impudence, his persistence, his peskiness, his perseverance, his annoyance, <laughs> his tenacity. Friend A wears friend C down. That's the key to this, okay? It's not the friendship, it's the persistence. But here's how Jesus brings all of this to a close. Verse 9, I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. More about persistence. But then he takes a turn. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Not a cool trick, right? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So in this conversation with His disciples, Jesus says, pray simply. You don't need to use a bunch of flowery spiritual language. Pray persistently. And pray boldly because God wants to answer. God wants to give you good gifts. Friend C only gets up to help out because of this friend's persistence, right? He just wants him to go away so he can go back to sleep. Jesus says, God is not like that. He's like a dad who loves giving his kids good gifts. Yesterday was my daughter's third birthday. And she's at that age now where she's starting to like, get the concept of presence. And she realizes that presents are fun, and so she wants them. <laughs> but, man, what a blast it is to give our kids gifts. 
Okay, there should be a picture up here. That was yesterday at the campground. We didn't give her a box of Kleenex, by the way. There's a <laughs> there are goggles in that box. And so she wore those goggles for the rest of the day. We've been going swimming a lot, so she's really excited to have her goggles. There's just so much joy when she opens that box. There's tissue paper and there's a Kleenex box. And inside is a pair of goggles, and it's like the coolest thing that ever happened to her. And as excited as she is, I think I look more excited than her in that picture, right? It is fun to give our kids gifts. I took her to Starbucks a couple weeks ago. We were down in Salinas visiting family, and I took her out on a little date just to get her out of the house for a couple minutes. And when we go to Starbucks, she orders cow juice. Which sounds gross, but it's chocolate milk, okay? And at Starbucks, I don't know if you guys have been there, they have those like little boxes of Horizon chocolate milk. So she picks it out of the cooler and puts it up on the counter. And the baristas at this particular Starbucks were really awesome. And so they cut it open and they poured it into a tiny Starbucks cup and they wrote her name on it. And they put it out on the drink counter for her to get. And when that thing came out, she was just like... (laughs) Literally, like arms in the air stoked (laughs) and again as excited as she is that just brings me so much joy it's so much fun to bless our kids Jesus says how much more how much more does God delight in giving us good gifts a couple of closing thoughts here Most theologians argue that at kind of the most basic level, there are two heresies, two deviations from Orthodox Christian theology. One is to see Jesus as human, but not divine. And the other is to see Jesus as divine, but not human. Good Orthodox theology holds the tension between Jesus' division or his divinity and his humanity. Now, what does that have to do with our conversation today? First, the tendency to emphasize Jesus' humanity over his divinity. Let's talk about that for a moment. When we drift in this direction, we underemphasize the spiritual reality of our world. Life is reduced to what can be measured and counted to the tangible. We're no longer connected to the hallowedness of life. And when we lose that, we tend to create our own gods. And those gods tend to look a lot like us. And we begin to take credit for all that we have. Now, about this other tendency to emphasize Jesus' divinity over his humanity. When we drift in this direction, we underemphasize the physical reality of our world. And life becomes about escaping the present, escaping reality, and trying to get to some better, more spiritual place that is not here. And as a result, we're no longer connected to the beautiful humanness of life. And when we lose that, we miss out on God's good gifts to us. Now, two central words in this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples about prayer. One of those words is the word bread. 
bread is quite literally central to Jesus's prayer. There's five petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us bread, forgive us, help us avoid temptation. Okay, bread is the third of those five petitions. In a rabbinical conversation, whatever comes at the middle is the big idea. Bread is at the middle of this prayer. Bread is also, of course, central to the parable, the story that Jesus tells about these friends. Now, why focus on bread? Jesus is reminding his disciples of the connection between the gritty, everyday reality of their lives and this awesome personal connection that they have with the living God. Both of those heresies reveal our struggle to trust this God who wants to give us good gifts. We either go hyper-spiritual, thinking that if we try hard enough, pray hard enough, pray the right kinds of words, we can manipulate God into giving us what we want. God becomes a sort of cosmic genie. Or we go in the total opposite direction. We don't bother God at all because we're good. We've got this. We don't need to get God involved in any of this. And yet, how many of us worry about bread? How many of us worry about our next paycheck, about retirement, about paying for college, about paying off college, about whatever activity our kids are going to get excited about next, we spend a lot of time and energy worrying about bread. The centrality of bread in this text today is a reminder that everything comes under the rule and reign of God. There aren't spiritual things that we pray about and non-spiritual things that we take care of on our own. Everything, no matter how mundane, is an opportunity to experience the grace and goodness of God in our lives. Everything. This brings us to the second word that is central to this conversation, and it's the word friend. The word friend shows up four times. In addition, the words father, children, and son show up another five times. These are intimate, relational words. Prayer is about seeing the intersection between the spiritual and the physical, but it is also about relational intimacy. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. We can be friends with God. This is amazing to me. We can be friends with God. And what do friends do? They talk. They share. They reveal themselves to each other, the good and the bad, the places of trust and untrust. They have conversations. Prayer is an honest conversation with God, our friend. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus does. When he gets off that Samaritan road, when he finally gets to Jerusalem, having set his face in that direction, he lays his life down in the most real way possible for each of us that we might be friends with God. Jesus says, how much more God is a better father, a better friend than we could ever imagine. How much more? 
So, may you pray simply and persistently and boldly. And as you pray, may you see all the connections between these ordinary, in-between, everyday moments and the glorious reality that we can be friends with God. And remember how much more does God want to give you good gifts? How much more? Let's pray. Dad, you're awesome. You are in control. Feed us. Don't lead us to a bad place. And forgive us as we do our best to forgive others. Amen.